Father, your word has created the world. Uh, You spoke, and it was, and it is. And you are sustaining all things with the power of your word. In other words, your word gives shape to all that we see. And just like your word gives shape to all of creation, we pray that your written word, the Holy Scriptures, would give shape to our lives, that you would reform them, reshape them, recreate them even, more and more into the image of Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So we are making our way through John's gospel, and as we, uh, really, if you have an actual Bible with you, you'll see that there's a lot of John's gospel left, uh, that we're really just past the halfway point. So a lot of the gospel, and this is like the rest of the gospels, is devoted to the last days, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, because it's the point for which he came. As we get closer to the cross, we're getting closer to the heart of the story, closer to the whole point of of it. And this is one of the things uh, that is true uh, for us as as we live the life of faith, as we consider the scriptures. The expectations that we have about God, what he's doing, what he's going to do, how our life is going to look, is often very different from the reality God likes to work in a way that kind of subverts our expectations. We saw it with Abraham. Remember, God calls Abraham, you're going to be a great, the father of of a great nation. You will bless the nations. His name literally meant father of many. Remember how many children he has for the longest time? Zero. And by miraculous conception, he gives birth to Isaac, father of one. So what's, what's going on? And then, and then God asked, calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. I mean, that, that flies in the face of all of Abraham's expectations. Remember Joseph? Joseph was promised that he would rule and reign. He'd be the leader of his family. And remember what happens following that dream? His brothers rule him, don't they? They abuse him. They sell him as a slave. He spends decades as a slave. And then he's wrongfully committed or convicted of a crime and thrown into prison. After that dream of exaltation, his life takes a sharp nosedive into humiliation. And so the people of God have been waiting. They've been anticipating this one, this this greater son of David who would come and establish a nation forever. They've been waiting for that. And here he is. And he's about to establish his kingdom. How's it going to happen? Not the way anybody expects. We're going to see that this morning in this passage. The expectations of the people are very different from the reality of of what God is going to actually do through the Christ. So we're going to see that this morning. We've got three points. Uh, It's the crowd's expectations. That's the first thing. The crowd's expectations. The second thing is Jesus is falling down and Jesus is lifting up. So the crowd's expectations, Jesus is falling down, and Jesus is lifting up. Those are the three points. Now, this is a very, it begins with a very familiar passage. This is one that we look at uh, really every year with Palm Sunday. Um, we, uh, and it, we, of all the pr- texts of Scripture, this is one that we have preached most, this triumphal entry. But what I want us to just do for a moment is focus on the confusion of the crowds in this moment as Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. 
Look at verses 12 and 14. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, the feast of the Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now notice what the crowds pick up. Every, every child in here probably knows what they pick up. You remember what, what you guys get on Palm Sunday? Palm branches. Palm branches. This is very significant. This is a, this is a, a move that speaks volumes to those around and we got to remember the context here. Remember, the, the Jewish people have been under occupation for most of their existence. They had some success uh, a couple hundred years ago with the Maccabean Revolt. The Greek Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes, a, a, a Seleucid general, was occupying the people of Israel and was forcing uh, Greek ways upon the Jews. And they didn't like it. And it all culminated when Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar of the Lord. And the Maccabees, this family out in the countryside, Judas Maccabeus, led a guerrilla war against the Greeks and actually won. They actually overthrew the Greek power. And in light of that, there were palm branches celebrating this nationalistic victory that they had. And in a few decades... The Jewish people will take on Rome. It won't go so well. And then a hundred years after that, they're going to take on Rome again. And so there are these battles that the people do with the countries that are occupying them. And listen to what one commentator says. He says, when the temple was rededicated during the Maccabean period, palms were used in the celebration. And during both wars with Rome, Reliefs of palms, they stamped them onto their coins that these rebel Jews minted. So this act of celebration with palms is not neutral. The palm symbolizes Israel's national hopes. And they're now all being focused on Jesus, who is, who is going to come, and they believe, free them from Rome. And we saw something similar at the feeding of 5,000 several chapters ago. It was a group of zealots, most likely, that he fed, that Jesus fed, and they tried to take him by force to exalt him as their commander, their king, to ride in and conquer Rome. And here's the problem. These people, they're trying to conform Jesus to their agenda. They're trying to conform. They've got an idea this is what Jesus can do for me. And so they're trying to fit him into their little box of who Jesus is and will be for them. And John says, you cannot do that. Jesus, remember, remember what John is saying. Jesus is our creator. He is the architect of the whole world. He's the architect of your life. You don't design his life the way you want it. He designed yours. It works the other way around. Jesus doesn't fit into your agenda. He's not like a little lapdog for your you know, political agenda or therapeutic agenda or family agenda. He is Lord. You submit to his agenda. That's how it works. And then to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah, he rides in on a donkey. And also, remember Judas' blessing? 
that the Lord, that Judah will tie his donkey to the choice vine. There's, there's a little nod to Judah's blessing that we, that we looked at back in Genesis. And then, verse 19, look, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, prophesy unwittingly again. Remember Caiaphas' prophecy, the unwitting prophet? Here we see this, look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, look, the whole world has gone after him, right? And the whole world will go after him. Actually, put it better, he will go after the whole world. And we're going to see that in, in a moment. But he, the, the crowd's expectations are one thing. We're going to get a political messiah, a political king, who can lead us out from under Roman occupation. But Christ will defy that expectation, showing that his ministry works on a completely different plane. A, 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 he has far grander purposes than dealing with the enemy of Rome. And so he's going to speak of, of, of what he came to do. And it's going to become the, the two points again, falling down, Jesus falling down, and Jesus being lifted up. So first, let's look at what he says about falling down. So there are these Gentile and Greek, Greek God-fearers uh, that are coming to Passover. They're, they're basically Jewish converts. And they come to Philip and Andrew. Philip and Andrew, these are the two kind of Gentile, at least by name, they're Gentile. Philip and Andrew are the disciples. Philip's from a Gentile region, we see. And, and they say to Philip and Andrew, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. This is a great question. This is my task, actually, as I see it. It is to show you Jesus. They're asking the right question. Sir, show us Jesus. And that's what we try to do every week is show Jesus through song, through sacrament, through word, through all of the things that we do. But putting forward Christ as he's revealed in the scriptures, not as we imagine him to be, as he's revealed. And now the question, of course, here is, do these Greeks actually see Jesus? It's not entirely clear. But what is clear is that Jesus explains sobering truths about what's to come in the, in the next few days. Sobering truths. Remember, very pep rally, mood, excitement, people waving palm branches, smiling at each other. It's finally here. The time has arrived. He's coming to conquer the world. Excitement. And Jesus answers, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, so far so good. This sounds great. It's, it's keeping with the theme. We love glory. The crowd's nodding in agreement. Amen. Preach. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Yeah. And then look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And at this point, the crowds, they, they furrow their brows. What? What? What are we to make of this? Unless a seed, a grain of wheat, falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, they understand the literal meaning, right? They're very agrarian. They're planting seeds. They know how this works. We may not, we may not understand it quite as well, not being as much into seed planting. But when a seed breaks off from its life source and drops into the ground, it, in a sense, dies, doesn't it? 
Because something new comes up. The tree, when you see a tree outside, you're not saying, oh, there's a big seed. That's a really big seed out there. No, the seed's gone. The seed broke apart. The, it, 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 it died. And the life that was in it sprouted up, shot up into something new, a tree, or we, you know, whatever it is. And then keep reading. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Okay? Now let's extend the seed imagery a little bit. The seed's glory comes by way of death. That's what Jesus is saying. The seed's glory comes by way of death. Now, Paul explains, Paul elaborates on this theme in his great chapter on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote it, um, here. This is chapter, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 35 through 49. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? People that, they, they don't believe the resurrection of the dead, this is impossible is what the church at Corinth thinks. And Paul says, not so fast, it's not impossible. Um, but the question is, well, how, how are they raised? With what kind of body do they come in the resurrection? And Paul says, verse 36, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be. The seed that you're throwing out into the dirt, it's not what it's going to be. It's just a bare kernel. Maybe of wheat or of, or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed, its own body. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. This is really significant. This is, this actually is, is very, can transform our outlook. Um, for you that are 40 and older, you're getting into the kind of middle age, you're starting to feel, I'm not as fast as I used to be, I'm not maybe as you know, strong as I used to be, I'm not as beautiful as I used to be. We're dealing with all of these struggles of, of growing old, and as we get older, our memory fades, our wit fades, our smarts fade, we can't do the things that we used to do. Paul is saying, hey, don't despair. The seat... The seed feels the same way as it's breaking apart. As the cracks come into the seed, as it's about to give forth the life that's within it, does the seed think, oh my gosh, I'm I gotta moisturize and take care of my seed self so I can retain the old? No, that's foolish. Paul is saying the, 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 our life is Going, we're going to break apart sooner or later, only to open the way to something far more glorious. He says, and, and you know, aging is, is dishonorable. He says that here in, the, in the 1 Corinthians 15. He says it's sown in dishonor. There's a lot of dishonor that comes with aging. 
but it is raised in glory. The selfish life. See, so much of our lives are lived trying to retain what we feel as though we're losing or have lost. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's the wrong way to think about it. You're pouring yourself out in this life, and that's what he came to do. We are designed to give ourselves up. And we said this a few weeks ago, but remember, this is, this is because creation itself is one that offers itself up to the world for the world's enjoyment, isn't it? Remember we talked about snowflakes? How one snow, why, why is God so lavish with snowflakes in the blizzard? Because that's what creation's like. And the reason creation is lavish is because creation is an extension, is, is, is a manifestation of God and His goodness and His lavishness. And all of a sudden, we're seeing our Creator walk around on planet Earth showing us the same kind of lavishness in His ministry. Right? Pouring Himself out, and He's about to do the, the, the pinnacle of His life offering on the cross in days. But what Jesus is saying is, as we serve others, as we pour ourselves out, we get glory. As the seed breaks apart and becomes a life-giving tree that is a blessing to its environment, it gets glory. That's where the glory is. And not just glory, we get eternal life. And like I said, this is important for us. I mean, we're obsessed with self-preservation, aren't we? Um. We, we wear helmets for all kinds of activity, which I'm pro-helmet. Don't get me wrong. It's good. But, but if, if you get on a bicycle and you're, you look like a hockey goalie, you, you may have taken a good thing too far. And I wonder if this desire to kind of mitigate risk hasn't confused us a bit on what the life of faith looks like. Self-giving, breaking the seed, breaking ourselves to the glory of God, so that his glory might shine forth. Self-repudiation is the way of Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. And look, he, he says, verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you serve me, you follow me. Where am I going? To death. The call of, of my followers also, likewise, similarly, is to death. We saw that with Lazarus. Remember Lazarus, who was raised from the dead by Christ? And now what do the Roman author or the, I'm sorry, the Jewish authorities want to do with, with Lazarus? They want to put him to death. That's what they're doing. Putting him to death. The disciples of Jesus, the apostles who spread the word of Christ throughout the world. What happens to them all? They all die. They all die a martyr's death. Now, whether that's the outcome or whether it's just a daily dying to ourselves, death is our way of life. That's, how, that's just how the Christian life works. It's our call. So that's, that's Christ falling down. It's going to happen in a matter of days. And it's also, he's also going to speak differently of what's about to take place as himself being lifted up. Okay, so we're going to turn to that point now. Now, Everything I've said, like I said, sobering. It's sobering. Is Jesus just, you know, yippy skippy his way through this? No, he's not. He's not. In fact, he's, he's troubled. He's, you might even say he's feeling depressed. Look at verse 27. My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? 
He's wrestling with the realities of which he is speaking. What shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But it's for this purpose that I have come to this hour. I, it's, it's, it's similar to his prayer in the garden, isn't it? Father, let this cup pass before me, but not my will, but yours be done. It's similar to the anguish that he felt in the garden. He's feeling that here. And then, out of the heavens, God speaks. Verse 28, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is only three times does the Father speak in the Gospels, at Jesus' baptism, at his transfiguration, and right here in this moment. So this voice from heaven comes down saying, I have glorified it. You want to see the glory of God? Look no further than the ministry of Christ, which we, we, we've been seeing. Christ calming storms. Christ feeding the hungry. Christ healing the lame. Giving sight to the blind. Raising the dead to life. Christ providing wine at a party where wine ran out. That's, that's the glory of God on display. But he also says this, I will glorify it again. If we really want to understand the glory of God, it's the cross. The death and the resurrection of Christ are the glory of God. Surprising, shocking, not what we would expect, but it is. And there's confusion surrounding what exactly this voice from heaven is. Is it thunder? Is it an angel? And then verse 30, Jesus says, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. I am, I am locked in on the Father's will. I understand it. I'm in sync with it, in step with it. But because this truth, that the Son of Man must fall, that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Because these truths are so hard, a voice from heaven gives validation to what I am saying. Because what I am saying works against your every instinct. The passions of the flesh, this grates against our, our flesh, doesn't it? That you must die, that you must pour yourself out, that you must look to the needs of others before your own. This is what Christ is telling us. And we don't, we don't, this is not. We don't like this. We don't come up with this on our own. But Jesus is saying, look, I'm saying it, and now the heavens, the heavens are actually speaking it, the voice of the Father, just so that you know. This is validation of what I'm saying. This is the way the world is, okay? And the Creator is speaking forth that right now. And then, get this, verse 31. Okay, so... You might think, well, that's weakness. Okay, so be weak is the, is the answer, right? Just be weak, just sort of lay over, let people run over you. and die. But that's not what he's saying, because look what he says in verse 31. Through this, the judgment, the world will be judged. And the ruler of this world will be overthrown, will be cast out. That this is the way to victory. That the pivot point of human history comes when Christ dies and is raised from the dead. 
It's the pivot point of all. Genesis 3.15, when Adam and Eve rebelled from from God, ate the fruit, disobeyed, God proclaims a a curse on the serpent. Genesis 3.15, that someone coming out of the line of Eve, a son of Eve, would crush the head of the serpent. And we've been, our whole story through Genesis was, who, who is it? Who, who's the one? And the whole narrative of the Old Testament, who's the one? The one has arrived, the Messiah. And how's it going to happen? How is the serpent going to be crushed? This is the answer. The, the life-giving offering of Christ. And it's going it's to come via death, but not just any death. A particular death. Look at what he says, verse 32. And I, Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what, by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Now he speaks of, of him being lifted up. And it really has double, double meaning, right? Because they say that what he's referring to is, is the cross, right? He's nailed to a tree on the ground. It's hoisted up. He's lifted up. Above the earth, that is literally what he's talking about. But, 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 but figuratively, it's his enthronement. It's his crown. The crown of thorns is just a picture of the, the ultimate, the crown of glory that he is taking as he's giving himself up for the world. And it has, he says in verse 32, it has a magnetic effect. Look at what he says. Again, verse 32. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Frederick Bruner puts it like this. The cross is the world's uh, most magnetic power, and not even gravity can rival it. Athanasius, writing in the fourth century, said this. As he spread his hands on the cross, he drew the ancient people of the old covenant with one hand and the Gentiles of the new covenant with the other, uniting them in himself. He draws them to himself through his death, through the cross. And in one moment, he judges the world and exposes the bankruptcy of life lived in the flesh. And he saves the world with an outpouring of love and shows us the way to live life, pouring ourselves out. So the question I want to kind of close with is this. What are you building your life on? What is it that you are building your life upon? As I see it, there are three options for us. The first is to uh, build our lives apart from Christ. To exalt and crown our desires, our impulses, our passions, and to follow them. To crown them as king of our lives and to follow them. And that's, that's really what our culture is, is encouraging us, catechizing us, I would say, to do. Um, that's, that's that approach. There's a second approach. It's the way of the crowds. Uh, the crowds that wave their palm branches. And that is to take a Jesus of our own making, 
and crown him Lord. Maybe it's uh, American Jesus, whose primary objective is to keep us one nation under God, and that's where all of our efforts and energies and thoughts are centered upon that. Maybe it's crowning him as middle-class Jesus, where, where the, the purpose of our lives, of our faith, is to help us. You know, we, we keep our manicured yards. We keep the 529 accounts looking good for the kids' college. We keep the 401ks looking good so that we can have a nice, pretty safe life. That's what Jesus wants. It's the same temptation of the crowds, right? They're conforming him to what they think Jesus is like. The third option is the, is the answer, and that is to anchor our lives in Christ as he's been revealed, as he is, Christ crucified, Christ glorified. That's where we root our lives, in the death and resurrection of Christ. Well, these truths are hard, and they're, they're too hard for, for, for the majority, as they, many people don't believe they were looking for a political savior, not the Jesus who's, uh, the, who is a seed that falls to the ground, not the Jesus who is hoisted up upon a cross to die, to die for them. They don't have any interest in that. But here's the thing. As we mentioned a moment ago, the, when God defies our expectations, it's not because our expectations are too high. It's because our expectations are miserably low. That what God is doing is not just dealing with Rome. He's dealing with the fundamental problem of human sin. And Leslie Newbegin insightfully captures this. And I'm going to read it. It's, it's a bit lengthy, but it is, it's good. So just bear with me. The powers that govern the life of the world will gather to sit in judgment upon Jesus. And that's what we have. We have all these little players on the ground, and they're all gathering. And he, he names them. There's the law, represented by the scribes. There's religion, represented by the Pharisees. There's the established order, represented by the high priests and the Sadducees. There's worldly, real politique, like politics, represented by the Roman governor. And then there's the popular revolutionary enthusiasm represented by the Passover crowds, the crowds that we saw at the beginning of our passage, waving their palm branches. He says, all of these groups of people will combine in a strange and unique coalition to condemn and destroy Jesus. And by this act, they will write their own doom. The rulers of this age, as Paul calls them, did not recognize in Jesus the presence of the power and wisdom of God. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Having done so, they have forfeited their authority. They thought, they thought to destroy Jesus forever, nailing him and his claim to the cross and making a public exhibition of him before the world. But they did not understand what they were doing. What in fact happened was that Jesus himself nailed the old order to the cross, and in it disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them. What Jesus did on the cross is he obliterated the old world order. It's, it's fallen apart. It, it has no power. 
And what he did is he broke in, just like a shoot, just like a seed. It broke. His life broke. He died. He poured himself out. And what has broken into creation, a little shoot, has popped into creation. And it's the shoot of the kingdom of Christ. It's a new world order oriented around Christ and his life. And so the final question that, we're, that I want to just pose to you this morning is, which world order are you a part of? Do you want to join the powers of this age? It's dying. It's actually already functionally dead. This, this shows signs of life. Like a dead snake that's kind of wiggling around. It's, it, it, there's maybe some life to it, but ultimately it's dead. Or the kingdom of life. The kingdom that comes by way of death. The resurrected creation, the new creation, Christ and his kingdom. The old world order, it's all about you, yourself, your passions, your desires. The new world order, it's looking outward to others, pouring yourself out as Christ poured himself out for us. So the question is, how do I get into the new world order? How do I get into the kingdom of Christ? Again, the cross, it's the, it's the focal point. It's the It's the thing upon which this whole kingdom is built. The death of Christ. He takes your selfishness, your sin, your judgment that that is coming your way, and he absorbs it so that you might get the life that comes from him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are making our way through profound truths. And uh, we confess our our little minds just... uh, are groping around to understand them even. And it, it's, not, it's not even anything that's necessarily new. It's, it's the thing we talk about every week. I, I, I have, for whatever reason, I have this sense that we are kind of poking in on deep truths. Um, as though we're swimming over a, a deep hole that we've just kind of realized is really deep. And I pray that your spirit would take us into that. Help us to uh, understand, to comprehend what is beyond comprehension, and, and also live in a way that, um, that is consistent with these truths. We can't do it. We need your help and spirit, and we pray for that now. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.